1: coming up this hour, what should be forming us spiritually. And then we're joined by journalist, historian, and speaker Garrett M. Graff to talk about and remember 9-11. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Friday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson, and my co-host Brian Fromm is out for the day. And so I'm thrilled to be joined by my friend, my regular guest co-host, author, speaker, all-around talented woman, Miss Catherine McNeil. Hi, Catherine. Hey, Aubrey. I'm so happy to be here today. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us again today. I love that uh, you're my friend, my neighbor, and now you get to be my part-time co-host. This is very I fun. I mean, we have Thank so much you. fun together. Yeah. Catherine, one of the things that you write about and speak about and write books about is um, spiritual formation. Yeah. Especially from a theological lens. And if you don't mind, I'm actually gonna read you, I'm going to read you a tweet that you tweeted last oh, week and then okay. kind of put you on the spot and thought we'd have an interesting <laughs> conversation about spiritual formation and spiritual practice. So are you ready to be tweeted at with your uh, <laughs> I guess, you know, we write what we need to hear, right? So yeah, I, I better so I'm gonna take it. All right. Okay, here's what you said. You said I spend so much time thinking about formation, about what forms us. How are we formed into the sort of people who value what we value and make the decisions we make? And how do those values and decisions form us in turn? Ooh. Okay, so I, I, you know, I don't know if you want to give us the background. What made you? What were you thinking about that you tweeted that? Or generally speaking, like, can you unpack that for us?
2: Um. Sure. Wow. Well, well, you know. Most of the time, I think when we imagine spiritual formation, we're thinking of these kind of the big rocks um, to use that metaphor of how do you fill the jar up with all the Mm -hmm. all the rocks you start with the big rocks and. I wholeheartedly endorse that. You know, there's there's the practice of prayer, there's service, there's Bible reading and Bible study, meditation, kind of reflecting on God's word. Um, you know, there's the classic spiritual practices that form us. And we're 100%, I agree, those are the big rocks. But I think sometimes we fail to realize that once we've, you know, done that 20 to 30 minutes of important quiet time or devotional time or worship time, we are continuing to be formed throughout the day as we go. Um, the way we talk to people, what we're listening to on the radio, for example, mm-hmm. um, the way we view people, the things, the messages that we're hearing, even the way we carry ourselves in the world, it's both forming us and it's impacting how we are forming others. And I wish we would think a little bit more about those aspects of spiritual formation. Um I think when I tweeted that I was listening to some friends kind of debate and they were believing the worst about each other mm. so profoundly and they I think there's probably a lot of common ground in mm. a lot of the areas where we're polarized as a society these days even as a Christian community we're very yeah. polarized yeah. and I thought to myself like what are the forces that formed You know, these two particular people who were in conflict, but also the rest of us, like how have we been formed to view each other in such an ungracious, such a suspicious way? I think suspicion is the word I want. Mm. How have we been formed to be so suspicious? And then how does that suspicion in turn form us going forward? So
1: that was my long answer. That is I think really interesting and something Brian and I talk about a lot is there there does seem to be a um there's a lack of civility even amongst friends you know so you can't even sort of have public discourse about about a disagreement anymore without it turning very vitriolic and personal and I I think sometimes my concern is that are one, our witnesses at stake. And then two, that we're just not treating other the way God has called us to treat one another. And I do think you're right that there is something, because I think we could easily go, well, that's just our sin nature. And there's some truth to that. But I do think we have to be mindful of the things that are forming us, where we're getting our information, where we're getting our news, where we're getting our spiritual, um, uh, wisdom. And I think sometimes what we what we don't realize is that even if it's not overtly spiritual, if you're watching Fox News all the time or if you're watching CNN all the time, those things are forming you spiritually. Absolutely. And, and that is really – that has to be a wake-up call to the American church right now that, um, of course, engage in the world, engage in society, engage in the things that um, are important to you. God calls us to do that. At the same time, we have to have some sort of discernment muscle that it seems like many of us, a lot of people do, but many of us don't have right now, that we can recognize, oh, wait, this is forming me away from the things of Christ instead of towards the things of Christ. And I wonder, Catherine, just in your own experience, I mean, you don't have to be an expert on this, but just in your own experience, thinking through and and writing about and studying spiritual formation, how do people begin to... Be formed spiritually in a way that's godly and good and Hmm. honoring of other people. Like, what are some practical ways for people to begin thinking about this?
2: Well, you know the old saying, you know, grass grows where it's watered. Mm -hmm. I I do think we need to pay attention to what we're watering, even inside ourselves. You know, you mentioned the sin nature. Well, our sin nature is going to grow, and it's going to grow and grow and grow, and it's going to become really invasive. Um, or but. We also have the Holy Spirit in us. And um, I realize that Christians will never kind of solve the tension of how much is the Holy Spirit working in spite of me and how much (laughs) is the Holy Spirit working in cooperation with me. But what I say to my kids is that we have both these things inside of us. Which are we going to water? You know, Mm. which are we... Which are we going to invest in and focus on and spend time on? Because that's what's going to grow. And it's going to come out, first of all, in just these sort of little mundane, um, you know, how do you treat the people you live with? Mm -hmm. You know, do you, how do you respond when you uh, lose your temper? You know, Mm -hmm. when um, I I really do think that the more mundane, more everyday, in some ways, that's the bigger deal because that's who we are all the time. And yeah. um, it's not who we are, that one 15-minute segment on the radio. Yeah. It's who we are being formed to be while we're at work, while we're with mm-hmm. our neighbors, uh, while we're with our families. And I, we do have a sin nature. We also have God's spirit in us. So which are we going to be making room for?
1: Mm, that's and such a good word, Catherine. I think
2: that's a question that we should be asking ourselves more often.
1: And then Catherine, with the last thirty seconds or so, do you have any spiritual practices? Like I just want to give people some really practical handholds for watering that spiritual grass, I guess. Watering that Holy Spirit grass. Are there any spiritual practices that you um put into practice daily or weekly or seasonally that have been meaningful for you?
2: Well, you know, I did mention the big rocks. I think that if we're not spending time in prayer and worship in service, in Bible reading and study and meditation that we're going to, we're going to get off. But I think I actually start with, I tend to recommend that people start with this really simple one. Are you ready? Ready. Just take a breath. Mm. I think if you could just even once a day, remember to just take a deep breath and remind ourselves that we are here, I'm sitting in this chair, I'm talking to this person, and God is here. Mm-hmm. God is in this interaction. God is in this moment. Um, I think that that can help us to remember all the things that we want, yeah. all of the Spirit of God and the way the Spirit is prompting us. So I think I'm going to recommend uh, just take a deep breath and remember that God is here.
1: Love that, Catherine. Thank you so much for that word. I'm so glad that you're with us. We're off and running. We have a great show for you today. Joining us next is Garrett M. Graff, a journalist, historian, and speaker here to talk about 9-11. That's going to be really powerful. You are not going to want to miss it. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. We are so thrilled that you're with us here today. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my guest co-host, Catherine McNeil. And we are beyond thrilled because today we are joined by Garrett M. Graff. He's a journalist, historian, speaker, host of the podcast series Long Shadow. And we are thrilled to talk to him about his book, the New York Times bestseller, The Only Plane in the Sky An Oral History of 9-11. Garrett, thanks so much for being here with us today.
3: Thanks so much for having me and for talking about this important memorial uh, weekend.
1: It is certainly good timing to have you on the show. For our listeners who may not know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're calling in from, what you do when you're not journaling and speaking and podcasting and all of those things?
3: Sure. So uh, I'm a journalist uh, based in Burlington, Vermont. Um, I'm the former editor of Political magazine, among other uh, day jobs. And uh, I've spent most of these last 20 years covering 9-11 and the way that it has changed our country and mm-hmm. our world um, mm-hmm. and uh, have written uh, three books, actually, um, on wow. 9-11 and its various wow. parts, um, including the one that you mentioned, uh, The Only Plane in the Sky, which is a oral history of about 500 Americans as Mm -hmm. they lived that day, morning to night, coast to coast.
2: Wow. Garrett, I am just blown away by the amount of work and thought that you put into this oral history. And as a fellow writer, I know that whatever we're writing about, we have to marinate in for months. What was that like for you, delving into this heartbreaking story series of stories for such a long time?
3: Yeah. Um, So I... I always laugh um, uh, wildly inappropriately because my dumbest <laughs> comment about writing a book on 9-11 was that it was, I was unprepared for how emotional writing mm. a book about 9-11 actually. Turned wow. Out to be. Yeah. Um, and it, it was, um, it, you know, uh, so the, the book is a mix of archival um, oral histories um, and then um, interviews that I went out and did myself. and, uh, the, you know, the individual stories are obviously full of tragedy and sorrow. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a day of unimaginable, uh, sorrow really for so many families, so many Americans, um, and, and our country. But yeah. what ultimately inspired me through the book is that I don't actually think if you take the totality of the book, if you take the totality of that day, um, it's a day that's actually filled with incredible hope hmm. and love hmm. and testimonies of the resilience of the human spirit. And hmm. wow. that, to me, the story of nine 11 and the totality of the book, as I put it together that day, um, is actually one where you see so many instances of the best that, people can offer in response to what is, uh, you know, some of the world's greatest evil. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, we're all familiar in some ways with the stories of, you know, the firefighters and the police officers who ran towards Mm -hmm. the burning tower, the first responders in the Pentagon, the people in the, in the military who evacuated the Pentagon and then turned right around and actually ran back into the building Mm. to rescue colleagues. Um, But it's a day that's also filled with a lot of um, what what I call sort of more mundane heroes as well. Um, You know, part of the advantage that I had coming back, you know, I started work on this book about five years ago. And so, um, you know, I was returning to it about 15 years after the fact then, Mm. is that there's so much of that day that got overlooked in Hmm. the first way the first times that we told that day you know events that on any other day of modern american history would be among the most dramatic events of modern american history that day are not even among the 10 or 12 most interesting stories that we're familiar with Um, and so i spend a lot of time in the book for instance Um, tracing the maritime evacuation of New York on Hmm. 9-11, which most Americans don't know happened at all, and yet actually was the largest maritime evacuation in world history.
1: Wow.
2: It was
3: larger than the British evacuation of Dunkirk. A half million New Yorkers evacuated as part of this, uh, you know, truly makeshift civilian armada uh, of mm. boats pulling up to the seawall at the tip of Lower Manhattan, rescuing people trapped wow. by the collapse of the towers. Um, you know, fishing vessels, pleasure yachts, tugboats, um, passenger ferries. Um, and, you know, these are not first responders. You know, these are like yeah. people with their own boats, you know, you know um, tugboat captains, fishing vessels, um, and wow. who hear the call from the Coast Guard. Um, you know, all available boats, all available boats, um, wow. you know, please report to the tip of lower Manhattan to help with the evacuation and just sort of like hop in their boats across the New York Harbor and, and pull up, um, mm. the stories of the air traffic controllers that day, um, you know, who at nine forty two are given an order that no one has ever heard before land, mm. everything land, everything now. And they bring down 4,500 planes that are in the sky over the United States at that moment. Wow. Um, uh, uh, landing all of them safely. Um, and yet, you know, they force down those planes at the closest available airports, regardless of whether the plane. Uh, Regardless of the plane's destination Mm -hmm. and regardless of whether the airport is in any way prepared for those arrivals. And that's Mm. a story that we sort of really only know if Americans know it happened at all. They're only familiar with the tiny sliver of the story that is the 38 planes that land in Gander, Newfoundland, the transatlantic flights that are brought down 7,000 passengers into a town of 9,000 people that form the basis of the Broadway musical come from away. And so you have just over the course of that day, all of these incredible stories of Amazing. how Americans respond to the worst day in modern American history. And collectively I find just so inspirational.
1: Oh, Garrett, that's so fascinating. I'm so glad that you have put these together for us because I hate to think about those stories being missed. This is a large question to ask But, you know, we're marking the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And I wondered just what is one reason it is so important for us to make sure that future generations understand the magnitude of 9-11 and what happened on that day?
3: Yeah, this is a great question. And it's actually the the main purpose that I had to, to writing this book, which is... You know, we're twenty years after the fact. There's an entire generation who have grown up in the world shaped by 9/11, but yeah. no longer understand the experience yeah. of living through that day, mm-hmm. and the history that we tell of that day is this really neat and tidy one. Um, you know, four planes. The whole thing began at 8:46 New York time. The whole thing was over 102 minutes later with the collapse of the second tower at 10:28. Um, there was Pennsylvania. There was the Pentagon. There were the twin towers. But for anyone who was alive that day. That's not the day that any of us lived, that we didn't know when the attacks began. We didn't know how many there had been. Hmm. We didn't know when they were over. And worst of all, we didn't know what came next. And that when you look back at the choices that the U.S. government made, the choices that our country made after 9-11 to fight the war on terror, it was that emotion, it was the reaction of the fear, the chaos, the confusion, and the trauma of 9-11 that drove the way that we reacted, yeah. not the facts of the day, right. but the emotions hmm. of the day. And so th- that, hmm. to me, is the importance of trying to tell the story in the voices of the people as they actually experienced it.
1: Mm, that's so good. We are joined by Garrett M. Graf. He's a journalist, historian, speaker, and author of a book that we're talking to him about today, The Only Plane in the Sky. We were talking about a lot of the emotion behind 9-11 and that we were reacting as a country to the emotion, not necessarily to the facts. Right now, we're seeing a very emotional nation that rather than coming together, seems to be divided more than ever. And I wonder, what are your thoughts on that based specifically on what you have learned about Uh
3: 9-11? I think the two are not unrelated Um, Mm -hmm. uh, that I I think part of the challenge of taking stock here 20 years after the fact is that we can be more clear eyed about the mistakes that the government and the country made after Mm -hmm. nine 11. Um, And I think part of the, you know, people sort of have this idea that like, Oh, well, we were super united then. And then, yada, 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 we're super divided now. But there's actually a very clear line in my mind uh, that I see between the two Um, and that it was the choices, very dark choices that the U.S. government and our country and our politics made after 9-11
2: that
3: have led us from 9-11 to, for instance, the events of January 6th. Um, And that what you saw was that the U.S. declared war on evil and terror in this sort of very amorphous and nebulous way Mm -hmm. that uh, resulted in some very dark choices. Um, The the war in Iraq um, under false pretenses, the Mm -hmm. CIA black sites, the torture program, the prison at Guantanamo Bay. Um, and that we sort of stoked along the way um, some very heinous uh, anti Muslim, nativist, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, anti immigrant yes. uh, philosophies um, and sort mm-hmm. of threads of politics that, uh, you know begin to manifest themselves um, by 2008 in the sort of Republican whisper campaign that Barack Obama is a closet Muslim who is born in Kenya. Um, (laughs) The birtherism movement of which leads Mm -hmm. to the rise of Donald Trump. um, And, uh, you know, who's let's remember his first action as president is effectively implementing a Muslim travel ban, right?
2: Yeah. right. And right.
3: that right. you know, the this is a very deliberate set of political choices that uh, that our leaders have made along the way that have led us to where we are today. And this is something mm. that has not is not confined just to U.S. politics. Um, right. You know, you look at Europe. Um, and you look at the way that the choices that the U.S. and the West uh, and NATO made after 9-11, um, you know, and the way that that has inspired anti-immigrant, nativist, nationalist politics across yeah. Europe. And okay. I can draw you a pretty straight line from 9-11 to Brexit and sort yeah. of the collapse yeah. of the idea of a united continental Europe. Um and that these are uh, these are all, you know, part of this history that we have lived over the last 20 years. And, yes. and I think why, again, it's so important to understand the emotion of 9 eleven
0: because
3: yeah. what I think we are seeing um, sort of across our uh, uh, across the world right now is that 9 eleven was the hinge of modern history, that it is the dividing mm-hmm. line between the 20th century and the 21st. Yeah. And that, you know, in some ways, again, like, I can draw a pretty straight line between the events of 9-11 and the politics that they spawned and the way that we have mismanaged uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, You know, an event that has actually killed, you know, uh, many, many, uh, you know, more Americans than the events of 9/11 did. I mean, the, wow. the, the pandemic over these last mm-hmm. 18 months is basically a 9/11 every three days. Yeah. Um, and yet, um, we are, uh, you know, the the politics of the COVID pandemic are the politics spawned by our uh, poor choices after 9/11. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I don't think we can overestimate how much the psychological impact of 9 11 has formed who we are today and how we view the world. Um, dovetailing on that, you, you were talking about some of the decisions that were made then that are impacting us now. What are your thoughts on the recent news that we're all talking about with Afghanistan and the troops finally coming home?
3: Yeah, you know, I think, you know, and <laughs> there are huge. Ch- choices that we made after 9-11 sort of more tragic than the choices that we made in Iraq and Afghanistan um, and how we sort of mismanaged those opening couple of months of Afghanistan um, such that, you know, I don't think anyone that I have talked to in the last 18 years thought that Afghanistan would end up anywhere else than it is ended up right now. That, mm-hmm. y- yeah, you know, we, right, we have right. been losing this war uh, since January 2002. Um, the moment mm. that Bin Laden slipped out of Tora Bora uh, was the literal same day that Donald Rumsfeld at the Pentagon was getting his first briefing on the war plan to invade Iraq. And that wow. this is something where, um, you know, there was, there was never going to be a good time for the U.S. to lose mm-hmm. Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why we have stayed for 20 years. Um, yeah, right. but it is, I think, particularly heartbreaking to have that happen this summer in this lead up to the 20th anniversary. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, you know, you look at those 13 Marines and the sailor uh, who were killed in Kabul as the pullout uh, happened. Um, Only two of them were out of diapers on Mm. 9-11. Yes, I noticed that. You know, that, that is... Uh, you know, we have a generation of soldiers uh, uh, and Marines and sailors um, on our side fighting a generation of Taliban who were also too young to mm. remember 9-11 itself. Mm. Um, and, you know, that is a uh, th- this is a generation of failure and tragedy that has led up to where we are right now.
1: Wow, Garrett. So interesting. We have about a minute left, but I would love to ask you this question because I know you like talking about this theme of luck and how it played out in 9-11. Can you tell us any of those stories or what you mean by that?
3: Yeah. So uh, this to me is always the the thing that most stands out when I go back and look at the experiences of people on 9-11, which is How um, the little decisions that we think nothing of making on a daily basis, you know, when you get a cup of coffee, when you place a telephone call, um, when you step out to run an errand, um, which bus you board, which flight you book um, Mm. on that day ends up making so much of a difference about when people live and die. Um, mm. I tell the story in the book of uh, Michael Lamonico, the chef at Windows on the World, the restaurant mm-hmm. atop the North Tower, yeah. who that morning uh, would have normally been at his desk at uh, um, around 830 in the kitchen. And that day of all days, he stopped to get a pair of lens crafter, uh, a pair of glasses at lens crafters and mm. misses the last elevator up to his off to his kitchen. 70 of his colleagues die and he lives. Um, Mm. And and I think, you know, whether you call it luck or fate or faith, um, you know, that is such a determining aspect of how people live and die that day.
1: Wow. Unbelievable. Garrett, it has been such a thrill to have you on today. Garrett Graff is a journalist, historian, speaker, host of a podcast series you can listen to now called Long Shadow. We've been talking to him about his book, The Only Plane in the Sky An Oral History of 9-11. You can get that wherever you buy your books. And you can learn more about Garrett at com. You can connect with him on Twitter at Vermont Gmg. Garrett, thanks so much for being here today.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for thinking about this weekend.
1: You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're so glad to have you. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside a guest co-host, Catherine McNeil. Brian Fromm is out for the day, and I'm so thrilled to be joined by my friend, author and speaker, Catherine McNeil. Uh, yeah, I am
2: so glad to still be here with you today, Aubrey. I'm having a blast So I was recently reading an article that um, was published on Patheos.com. It's called Faith, Good Works, and the Danger of Shallow Christian Sentimentalism. Did you get a chance
1: to look at this article? I did look at this article. I, I, I thought it was interesting. He's talking about the image he saw on a chalkboard. And here's the phrase. Your beliefs don't make you a better person. Your behavior does. And he actually completely disagrees with this statement. The author of this article is a guy named Jack Lee. And he basically says the problem is this statement is the literal opposite of what the Bible teaches about understanding one's goodness. And he calls this shallow sentimentalism. But interestingly, Catherine, I read this and I thought of the book of James and I thought, no, no. Even the demons believe, right? What matters is our faith and our works. And so actually, I mean, of course, anytime you're talking about being a better person, that's not necessarily the goal. The goal of Christianity is for Christ to form his likeness in us, as we've been talking about throughout the show. So to become more Christ-like, but it's it's not the right beliefs. It's not that you believe certain things. It is that your faith in Christ. Christ's saving power also impacts the way you live as Jesus did. And so both yeah. have to be true. So I actually don't think I agree with this article. Now, I, I do understand what he's saying. Like, we have to be careful about pithy phrases and Christianity, and we have to be careful about sappy sentiments. Um, I, I just think he's wrong to pick on this particular sentiment.
2: I I totally agree with you, Aubrey. In fact, I had to read that particular paragraph over a couple times to be like, wait, wait, what? Like, am I reading that right? Because if you turn the phrase around, your behavior doesn't make you a better person, your beliefs do. That sounds like sentimentalism to me.
1: Mm, Um, But I mm. think that's
2: actually more what he's advocating for. But in reality, I think you're right that it has to be what we believe and what we do together. And I don't think that in Jesus worldview that there was even an option for them to be separated. That's what I mean. Um, I know this is sort of like a hackneyed example, but if you know, I'm sitting on a chair right now and it's not enough for me to be just like, Oh yeah, that's a, that's a legitimate chair. I actually have to sit in it. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And um, that's how we, that's how we have a belief is yes. we live in a certain way. Um, and, you know, maybe if we were chatting with the author of this article, he would be like, yeah, that's what I meant. But I think Christian sentimentalism comes more from people who have these ideas or sign on to an ideology that is not actually producing the fruit of Christ like behavior in their there lives. You go. Yeah, there you go.
1: Um, Catherine, I, I, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because Ooh. I feel like your upcoming book, which you shared the title with us last time you were I on did. the show, fearing bravely here, tell me the whole title. Cause I'm going to mess up the subtitle.
2: The title is fearing bravely, risking love for our neighbors, strangers, and enemies. Oh, I love it. So I, it, I, Oh, go ahead, Catherine. I was just going to say it doesn't come out until February of 2022, but it is available for pre-order.
1: Ooh, grab yeah. your copy on Amazon right now. Um, but I'm bringing up your book, Catherine, because this is actually something that you write about. This concept yes. that that um, we have maybe been formed too much, that it is all about believing this certain set of beliefs, this certain systematic theology, but then we've stopped. Yeah. And we have yeah. not actually practiced, put into formation, put into habit, the way of Jesus. Right. And um, that has to change. I mean, if we're seeing anything right now in the American church, we're seeing the the downfall because we have not practiced our faith. And um, I, anyway, just talk about your book a little bit for our listeners. Well, one of the sort of
2: central stories that I tell in the book is Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. And someone has come to him to say, how do I gain eternal life? And this is not really a seeker who's asking. This yeah. is a teacher. He knows all the answers already. He's, he's testing Jesus. He's trying to see how this conversation is going to play out. And Jesus says, well, you already know. What does, what does your scripture say? And so he says, well, love God with all your heart and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, yep, that's it. That's the path to eternal life. And it, First of all, Aubrey, you can see already there is belief. Yes. There's the the love of God. Yes. But then there's also the behavior. There's the loving your neighbor. It's not just a feeling that you have. It's actual action. And so to clarify, the teacher says, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells this fascinating story. And I don't think we spend enough time looking at Mm. how provocative of a story this is. And I'm not going to give it all away on the air. You guys got to have me. You need to have me back to talk about it. When we'll have you back available. in February, definitely. But Jesus chooses not. It's not someone who's a neighbor. It's someone yeah. who's a stranger and an enemy, who actively and sacrificially provides for someone in need, even though that person is both a stranger and an enemy. While the people who held the right beliefs, yes, passed by and did nothing. Yes, so. I think that is a story that the American church needs to hear right now, because we spend a lot of time policing each other's doctrines. Mm -hmm. Um, Meanwhile, we are not really holding each other accountable to truly, actively, sacrificially love our Mm -hmm. neighbors, our strangers, our enemies. Um, And Jesus has a lot to say about that. He even goes so far as to give that as the answer to how do I gain eternal life? Right. So I think we need to take a look at what Jesus had to say there.
1: Yeah, I think that's such a good word, Catherine. I feel like a lot of times I even hear sermons about Um, about the Good Samaritan, even about the rich young ruler. And a lot of times pastors will go, oh, but Jesus didn't really mean that. Surely Jesus didn't really mean that because the teaching is hard. I mean, it is a a hard hard. call to love your enemy. This is not, I mean, this is the the cruciform life, right? Like we are called to die to self and love those that frankly, we don't want to love. To love those who are considered outsiders, to love those who have hurt us, to love those who other people are painting as marginalized. And um, we do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we do that by recognizing what a great God we have who has loved us while we were still sinners. Yes. And so I think that the danger of Christian sentimentalism is not necessarily what this guy is talking about in his article. It's really that we stop at lots of good information and knowledge and we don't actually live our faith.
2: Yes. And
1: that has to change if we're gonna continue continuing continue to honor God as the church that we're supposed to be.
2: Yes, one hundred percent. But never to earn God's love. Always you go. powered by God's love. God's Amen. love is the wind at our backs Amen. that makes these things joyful. Yes even when they cost us because God's love is so abundant.
1: Mm, So good, Catherine. Thanks so much for that. Well, coming up next, Catherine and I are going to do one of the favorite things that Brian and I like to do. So this is going to be very fun. We are doing our very first Catherine McNeil and Aubrey Sampson top five list. You are not going to want to miss that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my guest co-host, Catherine McNeil. And Catherine gets to do something very fun with me today. That is something that Brian and I love to do. Our top five list. And uh, Catherine, since you're new here, you might not know this. But our producer, Deb, has created a fantastic intro To the top five list that we like to actually sing and dance and have as our telephone ringtone. So I'm going to go ahead and let you take a listen to our top five things intro. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five five things with Brian and Aubrey. Okay. Was that amazing? That is amazing. I love it. Yeah. She's so gifted. We love Deb, our producer. All right. So today... For those of you who are listening, Catherine and I have decided to do a top five list of snacks that we peruse. I don't want to necessarily say eat because there might be some drinking snacks that we (laughs) peruse while we're writing. Catherine and I are both writers and oftentimes you get stuck in writing and you need to get up and shake it out and have some food or sometimes you just need to do something else to to like shake your brain a little bit. And so we're going to talk about the top five things that we eat or drink or consume while we are writing. So, Catherine, I'll let you start with your number five. What is the number five thing that you snack on while you're writing? Okay. Well, you know, I'm
2: kind of regretting that I put this at five because I'm realizing that I could not exist without this (laughs) snack. I think I know what you're going to say. Yeah. It's coffee. Coffee. It's coffee. I think I put this at five because I can only drink coffee in the morning. So I'm often writing in the afternoon or evening, but yes, got to have my coffee. What about you,
1: Aubrey? Coffee will be on my list at some point. Let me ask you a quick follow-up question, Catherine. How do you take your coffee? Uh, I have a little espresso
2: machine. It is not an expensive one. It is a very cheap espresso machine. Nevertheless, I make myself a latte every morning. Or let's be honest...
1: My husband makes me a lot Oh, of your time. husband, he's such a he great does. he's such a great guy in the kitchen. All right, my number 5 is this was a really hard one for me and I'm not sure why. I okay, I'm just going to put bars because oh. I I tend to grab a granola bar or a oh. lemon bar or a breakfast bar or a just whatever bars we have, not candy bars necessarily, but like mm-hmm. whatever kind of Bars are in the pantry. I'm gonna grab those and just sort of okay. munch on them. Almost like instead of my meal, I'm just gonna munch on a bar because I don't have time to stop because I'm writing. So that's my Got number it. five. Got we, it. we can put like granola bars. Okay. generally speaking. Okay, what is your number four?
2: Okay, once I move on from coffee, my afternoon drink of choice is a Lacroix.
1: <gasps> oh, I have Lacroix on my list too. Do you have a Do particular you?
2: kind that you like? Um, no, there's a few flavors that I don't like, but I love the variety, like Mm -hmm. taste the rainbow. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, that's a good one. All right. So my number four is actually your number five, coffee. Hey. Yes. A writer's best friend is coffee. Let's just be honest. Let's be be honest. honest. And you're right. It's, that's not just because we're writers. That's because we're humans. We (laughs) drink coffee to survive, (laughs) I think. Um, Okay. Catherine, what is your number three?
2: Well, I have to give a little bit of an intro to okay. three, two, and one. Okay, please do. I I write at a desk. My desk has a drawer <gasps> and I do keep this drawer stocked with items three, two, and one. Okay, at all times.
1: Amazing. Yes. This is awesome information. Okay. Yep. So yep. what is number okay. three in your number drawer? three is some kind of dark chocolate. Oh, I love dark chocolate. Mm-hmm. Now, yes. do your does your family know that you have the secret drawer of snacks? Uh,
2: let's, why don't you ask me that after number two? Okay. 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 I will ask you that okay. after
1: number two. We will come back to that question. Okay. What's your number three? My number three is your number four. I'm oh. going with LaCroix also. Goodness. Yes. I particularly like the cello LaCroix. That Ooh, is one of my favorites. Okay. And so that would be, I don't necessarily, I mean, I can drink coffee all day, but it is definitely one of my fun, like go-to writing snacks. Mm-hmm. Or drinks, I suppose. Okay. So now we're ready for your number two and the answer to the question, if your family knows about your secret stash. All right. So what is your number two snack while writing? My number two, and I am an adult,
2: guys. I promise. (laughs) Number two is Sour Patch
1: Kids. Oh, Sour Patch Kids. That is a great candy of choice.
2: Thank you. I just something about the sweet and the sour. I can't mm-hmm. eat them very quickly, but they just sort of keep my brain interested
1: mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. the writing
2: process. So this is what my kids have sniffed out. Ah I don't think they care about the dark chocolate. I don't think they care about anything else. but they have been known. I've found my drawer just a bit ajar, mm. and I think it's it's
1: the sour patch kids. That is very interesting. So in my house, anytime I have like a secret stash of things, it gets found. Mm -hmm. My family, including my husband, eat all of it. And so my life, I feel like my life, Catherine, since I've started having kids, so... I'm going to say for the past two decades almost is me trying to find new hiding places in my house for my snacks. And I am I not exaggerating you. when I tell you I have hidden cereal under the bed. Oh because my I know if my family finds it it's gone and I won't get any. And that sounds a little selfish of me but it is no. literally like survival at my house. It is survival. I understand. Three boys and a husband who like to eat all the snacks. Okay. So I hope that your family is a little more generous with you. All right. My number two is – um this is a new snack of choice for me, but I am a really big fan. I don't know if you've had these before, Catherine. Dots pretzels. <gasps> my – I have a family member who loves those. I can't
2: think of who, if it's a child or a spouse. Okay. Someone in my house loves Dots pretzels. They are
1: just seasoned really well, and they're like a lit, like a teeny, teeny, teeny bit spicy. They're very addicting, is the problem. So you have mm. to sort of like put them in a bowl and go up to where you're working and not take the whole bag. But they yes. are just absolutely delicious. And there's different. There's Southwest original. There's now even sort of a Dots pretzels Cheetos. Which is a little weird, but I really, really like those. Okay, do you have any honorable mentions before we move on to number one? Snack while writing.
2: I don't. I'm a. I'm pretty. uh, I'm pretty uh, structured. Like I'm a routine person. Yes. But I I do want to jump in and say about your kids or family sneaking stuff. Yes. (laughs) I always close the bag. My kids never close the bag. What is that about them not closing bags? So it's like. You know what? If you're going to try to trick me, at least cover up the evidence a little bit. <laughs> at
1: least be a little bit sneaky and deceitful right? about it. <laughs> right? Don't leave the bag sitting open. <laughs> that reminds me that my I have started to make my kids, if they leave a bag of chips or something open, I have started to make them buy the bag, the replacement Ooh. bag at the grocery store because they make all the chips stale. That's cold. And, yes, I know. Yeah. But they, they need to learn that lesson. Use a chip clip, kid. Yes. To survive in this house. All right, Catherine, little drum roll. Your number, number one, one snack while riding is... Okay, I love this snack. It's
2: ride chips. Do you know what I mean by ride I chips? Don't, I have no idea what you're talking about. Wait, is um, that
1: like the brown part in the... Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. In the Chex Mix? Yes. Yeah. Chex
2: Mix or there's another snack mix. I'm not going to be able to get the name right, so I won't even try. Okay. This is not a product placement moment. <laughs> but yes, they're those little brown oh, chips. Those so are delicious good. that everyone eats first. Yes, and so the company that makes that snack mix sells a whole bag of the ride chips. Catherine, and- <gasps> I did not know this
1: about you, and now I feel like our friendship has just leveled up because I know what to get you now for things. That I mean is. Yes. <laughs> I did not know that. And that is okay. Right chips. Okay. My number one, Catherine, and I think you're going to know this and our listeners might even know this because we've talked about this before is grape flavored licorice. Yeah. You can't buy it everywhere. You can buy it from the Amish if you're traveling, but you can buy it on Amazon.com and some other places. It's rare, but grape licorice is my absolute favorite writing snack of all time. In fact, anytime I'm about to write a book or a big project, I will bulk load them so that I have them in my pantry. So there you have it. That is Catherine's and my top five snacks while we are writing. Would love to hear your thoughts about those on social media at Common Good Talk, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Let us know if we forgot anything or if you have any snacks you love as well. Catherine, thanks so much for co-hosting with me today. This has been such a joy. I have had so much fun, Aubrey. Thank you for having me. We always love having you. We'll have to have you back. And listeners, thanks so much for joining us today on The Common Good, where we take a look at news from a hopeful perspective. Brian and I will be back here on Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. right here on AM 1160. For Katherine McNeil, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.